Are you tired of hearing people complain about the world and ready to own the responsibility to make the world a better place? Hey, my name is Brent Simpson and welcome to this episode of Creating the Future. I believe that within each of us is a yearning to make the world a better place. So let's work together and make that desire a reality. My hope is that today's conversation inspires you as you endeavor to create the future. Without further ado, I want to introduce um, one of my mentors, my my brother from another mother, and my boss. Can you give it up for Pastor Brent Simpson? Hey, good morning, risers. How you guys doing? I ain't got no voice either. It's a good thing I ain't speaking this morning because I ain't got no voice either. I start preaching, I sound like a frog. Y'all would all be laughing and tweeting and weird stuff. Anyway, hey, welcome. I'm so excited you guys are with us this morning. If you're new to our church, my name is Brent. I get the privilege of being your lead pastor, and we're going to continue to experience God together today. And let me tell you what, you chose a good Sunday to be at church. Just look at your neighbor and say, you chose a good Sunday to be here. Man, I've been anticipating this day for a long time, man. And, uh, you know, we've been praying over the last 10 days and, and the Prayer 10 initiative and believing that God's going to take us to a greater uh, depth of revival and, and uh, God's going to do some new things in our church. And, and, and during that time, I think we had closer or somewhere around a dozen physical healings during that time. Isn't that awesome? Yeah. Love that. And uh, when we were at a uh, men's retreat, you know, it's X-Men themed men's retreat, and we were talking about how X is the Roman numeral for 10, and we talked about some of the connotations of the number 10, and, and it was powerful. And Mike Dow, the speaker, came up and he said God had given him a dream, uh, that this is the day two, God had driven, given him a dream that first night, and in the dream he said he was reminded that X is also the spot, it marks the spot that a helicopter would land on. And he said God has marked this church as a place that he's sending his presence. Yeah. And then as soon as he said that, it, it, it reminded me, it was like my spirit leapt and said, not only is, the, is that pad a place that helicopters land, it's also a place that helicopters take off. And so God has both marked us to come in and his presence will come and infiltrate this place so that you can go out and infiltrate the world. Yeah, yeah. So you chose a great day to be here. You know, we've been in a series called The Upside Down, started last week. Man, it's so good. You know, there's a difference between revelation and information, and we talked about that a lot. And, uh, and really, this Upside Down series is talking about the spiritual world behind the physical world that you can't see. You know, there's always things moving and shaking in the spiritual world that you can't see with your natural eyes. And that's the difference between information and revelation so often. And when it comes to racism in America, man, we are bombarded with information. Man, you can't watch the news. You can't watch anything without somebody talking about racism nowadays. It's just everywhere. And they're all giving you information, information, information. And you know, you can get information overload. And too much information without any revelation doesn't actually help you that much. It actually frustrates you. Because revelation is often how to solve the problem. Information just tells you there's a problem. So now I'm just bombarded with there's a problem. Life stinks. America's over. We're done. And God's going, no, 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 there's some revelation I want to give you because I'm not done. 
I'm not done. And if we could peel behind the curtain to see what God's doing behind the scenes, I think there's some powerful, powerful things. And so I've been anticipating this day for so long, and you are about to hear an amazing story, an incredible true account of what God's doing behind the scenes uh, in the area of racism in America today. And once this is over, I'm telling you in advance, you're going to be like, I want to know more about this. Tonight at 6 o'clock, we're doing an open roundtable type discussion where we're going to come together and just talk about the issue and talk about the spirit behind it and what we can actually do behind it as a church to heal somebody from the inside out and bring healing to America and racism in America from the inside out. Laws and such are fine, but true revival, true change happens from the inside out. And a law can't change from the inside. It challenges outside in. And so you're going to hear this amazing testimony today. Uh, and I want to make sure to get, get their books afterwards, man. And, and, and you are unique in the 11 o'clock service because you're going to get an opportunity to meet Matt and Will. And, uh, but so excited to have them with us. I asked them this morning on the way in, I said, I said how do you want to be introduced? You know, you can tell a lot from a person based on how they answer that question. I've had some people that are like, you know, I want to tell them that I have four PhDs and I've written 75 books and I've, you know, and, and I'm like, yeah, you can tell how big their head is by how they want to be introduced. And I love their response. They, they were just being silly. And, uh, and Matt said, tell them, and he used a different language, but he basically said, tell them that I'm the head honcho of this group and I'm the man. And Will just comes beside me somewhere. And Will said, no, you tell them. And he said, all the black people would understand this. He said, it's really me and all those people. And uh, a lot of churches, you probably couldn't say that. You can say that here. And uh, man, you're about to hear an amazing story of how God is working behind the scenes in the upside down, so to speak, in the spiritual world for racial reconciliation in America today. Uh, and you are going to absolutely love it. In all seriousness, uh, Matt leads an amazing ministry. Uh, 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 Matt Lockett leads an amazing ministry in Washington, D.C. Uh, that prays over D.C. and the politics of D.C. all the time. That's his whole job. He's a missionary in D.C. leading prayer teams. Uh, specifically over the last 15, 16 years, they have prayed specifically over Supreme Court rulings, uh, especially Roe versus Wade and those kind of things. But and you'll hear more about that today. But but Supreme Court rulings and know that those things are being bathed in prayer because of his ministry. And uh, and Will uh, leads. He's a professor at Christ for the Nations in Texas, and he is raising up a generation of mighty men and women of God behind him that he's investing his knowledge and wisdom in. And both of them are just amazing people. So with that being said, would you put your hands together for my new friend, Mr. Will Ford? And, and he's a sharp dresser. I asked him in the airport, like, like I'm texting because I've never met him face to face. I've only seen pictures, sorry. I told you we got more time in the service. I'm, I'm texting him in the airport and I'm going, like, like what color shirt are you wearing? Because I got to know who I'm looking for because I've never met the guy, right? I've seen pictures, that's it. So I said, what color shirt are you wearing? He comes back with this response. He's like, I'm wearing a cardigan and a, and a, and a jean jacket with polka dots. And I'm like, bro. Dude knows how to dress. I just think that's cool, man. Love you, bro. Yeah, so I just sit on the edge of the bed with the kids, and my wife dresses me, right? And it's just like one arm and a leg at a time with the boys, so. Thank God for a wife, right? Amazing wife to have. If you're watching, I love you! And I will see you shortly. Turn with me or turn on your Bibles to John 17. John 17. We're so excited about being here at Arise Church. Yeah, I love it. Come on, man. 
The name of the book is called The Dream King, How the Dream of Martin Luther King is Being Fulfilled to Heal Racism in America. This powerful book is going to equip you for how to lead. The church needs to lead the conversation on healing the racial divide and contending for revival in this nation. So you want, I want you, every person here to get a hold of this, okay, because uh, it's, it's an amazing book, probably because Matt helped me write it. He's an amazing writer and uh, amazing creative. I'm so glad God connected us together, man. This has been an amazing running with you. We'll get to more of that in a little bit. John, to hear them praying for you, all right? This made sense to me when I remember listening to my mother pray for me when I was sneaking late at night, coming in from, you know, drinking a little bit, hanging out. And I'm 53 now, but in my 20s, you know, went to Morehouse College, and I come home from the summer, and when I act the same wave of fool I was at college at home, right? So I'd sneak in in the middle of the night, 2 or 3 in the morning with my little Michelob ball in the middle, whatever. And who do I hear at 2 or 3 in the morning praying? My mother just going after God in prayer, praying. Buzzkill. <laughs> but you know what I realized years later? I realized she knew I was in the room. She just kept praying because she wanted me to hear what was important to her regarding my destiny and what she was contending for before the Lord regarding my purpose, my, God's plan for my life, all that. Yeah, turn, to, turn to your neighbor and say, Mama knew. Yeah, mama knew I was in the room. Jesus knows you're in the room, too. That's why he allows us to hear what he's praying for. Regarding the church, his heart, one of the last things he prays, is right here, John 17. Look at verse 19. He says, and for their sakes I sanctify myself, that they themselves also may be sanctified in truth. Verse 20. I do, not behalf, I do not ask in behalf of these alone, talking about the disciples, but for those also who believe in me through their word. Turn to your neighbor and say, now he's praying for you. What's he praying? That they may all be one. Even as thou, Father, art in me, and I in thee, that they also may be in us, that the world may believe that thou didst send me. And the glory thou hast given me, I was given to them, that they may be one. Just as we are one. Listen, right now, what you're going to hear is a crazy, stranger thing. It's kind of just unbelievable story of these uncoincidental coincidences that God has been weaving together in my life and in Matt's life. But listen, our story is just to let you know that God is doing something bigger with all of us right now. And there's more going on behind the scenes that we realize. Everybody talks about the stranger things, what, the upside down? There is an upside down to what God is doing with all this stuff in the spirit realm. There's a whole other storyline going on, y'all. There's a, everybody's little favorite word there is nar narrative. But listen, there's a meta narrative. It's God's storyline. He's healing this issue, and he's weaving all of our stories together. Can I pray for you? Father, I pray, Lord, that you release a spirit of wisdom and revelation in our midst. Come with great power, great glory. Connect us to your unfinished business. The double portion that you said that we will walk in once you've gone away, but then also the unfinished business of our grandparents and our great-grandparents and the forefathers of the Christian leaders in this community and in this nation. And Lord, use us as a united church to heal a divided nation. In Jesus' name.
Amen and amen. So John 17 is here, but you know who else had a great heart for the same thing with the oneness and unity? It was, it was Martin Luther King. I believe God used him as an answer to this prayer, part of that answer. And I love this I Have a Dream speech. And, uh, we have a little clip from the I Have a Dream speech. Could you go ahead and play that for me? Just for now, I have a dream. See, check this out. With you today, in what will go down in history as the greatest demonstration for freedom in the history of our nation. I have a dream that one day on the Red Hills of Georgia, sons of former slaves and the sons of former slave owners will be, be able to sit down together at the table of brotherhood. I have a dream. Isn't that a powerful, powerful speech? I love this speech because you know what? I'm one of those sons of former slaves. And I brought something with him. Matt and I brought something with us today. We've been carrying this around the country. This has been in my family uh, for about seven generations. It was used by the slaves in my family. They used it for cooking. They used it for washing clothes. But secretly, it was used for another reason. This 200-year-old kettle pot passed down from generation to generation to remind us of all those who had gone before us in the place of prayer. It's been passed down in my family. And um, so I don't think it's a, it's a coincidence, one, that I'm, I was born into this family uh, because it comes from this place called Lake Providence, Lake Providence, Louisiana. Providence, according to Nelson's Illustrated Bible Dictionary, is the continuous activity which God preserves and governs. It's the way God looks over seemingly insignificant things and apparent accidents. So that, in other words, there's this unseen hand that's working behind the scenes. God is providentially watching over everything concerning your life. Even you getting here today, you have no idea how many accidents God prevented for you to get here, to be here right now. You have no accidental things happen to you, and you're like, oh, my God, how did I wind up here? Providence hand was in the midst of all of that. All right? And the best, to me, New Testament understanding of providence is in Ephesians 2 and 10, where it says that we are Christ's workmanship, and we're, and he, we're walking out the works that he prepared beforehand for us to walk. In other words, God is looking over it all. He's already worked it out, and we're just walking in those steps. It's always... In other words, it's been predetermined in a sense. The word workmanship there is a powerful Greek word. It's the word poema. Everybody say poema. So you hear the word poem in there, right? So think about it. You're God's poem. You're his song. But even greater than that, the word poema was the word that was used to describe someone who's a skillful tailor or a fabric maker. In other words, God has a tailor-made destiny for your life. He's weaving something together. Right? You ever see somebody crocheting something, and on one side of it, it looks like a, it's a mess of just you know, knots and tatters everywhere. And then they say, oh, no, no, let me show you what I'm working on. And they turn it around so that you can see what they're working on. That's what God is doing right now. He's turning the story around a little bit so we can see what he's working on. Right? And the way you participate in what providence is doing is through prayer. You begin to pray, and all of a sudden, these uncoincidental coincidences start to happen, right? Like the way the Archbishop of Canterbury used to say it. He said, when I pray, the coincidences happen, but when I don't, they don't. <laughs> in other words, when I pray, the coincidences happen, but when I stop praying, the coincidences stop. What you're going to hear in this story is this crazy way that God is weaving all of our storylines, all of our stories, all of our family history together 
in the body of Christ to heal our nation right now. So the only way to help you understand this is share my story. So I didn't understand any of this stuff, honestly, as a concept until I went to a little conference in Colorado Springs, Colorado. And when I get there, I hear this, this, this teacher, this Bible professor teaching on prayer, but he talked about this aspect of prayer that I had, I guess, kind of taken for granted. He talked about synergy. Synergy is when you take two separate things and when you put them together, if they're working together, it doesn't create a, an addition of power, but a multiplicity of power. Scientists say if you take two horses and if you put them together, if they're pulling the same load, it creates so much exponential power, it's as if a third invisible horse has been added. Now, think about it. In the natural, when we work together, God has put together a principle so that when we work together, it produces a multiplicity of effort and results. That's amazing. That's in the natural. But listen, in the upside down, in the spirit realm, when one could put a thousand flight, but two could put what? When we work together. That's synergy. So thinking about it, we start getting all this agreement and prayer between red, yellow, black, and white. We start getting agreement and prayer between old and young, male and female. We can see the synergistic exponential release in the power of prayer like we've never seen before, right? This, like Psalm 133 is where it says, how good and pleasant it is for brethren to dwell together in what? Unity is like the anointing oil that flows from Aaron's head onto his beard and onto his robe. The Bible says, for there, everybody say there. The Lord commands the blessing, life forevermore. In other words, God is looking for a place called there. It's the place where we get together, drop our agendas, and come together and believe. Right? So I didn't understand the, the effect that agreement with God's children. I didn't understand the power of that upon the human heart until I had toddlers. Right? Parents are toddlers. I have a five-year-old and a seven-year-old, right? Benjamin and Samuel. Now, when they're fussing and fighting, what's the first thing I want to do? Parents are toddlers, what I want to do? I separate them. All right, you go over there, you stay over there. Matter of fact, I believe they think that's their names. Go over here, shut up, stay over there, stop it, you know. <laughs> or call them op and stop, op, stop, 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 you know. Right. They think that's their names. But listen, when they're playing in unity and agreement, ugh, it wrecks me. It has a profound influence on my heart. Man, I want to get on the floor and run around with them and roll on the floor with them. I chase them around the house if they want me to. If they ask me to get them ice cream without their mother knowing it, I'll go do it. <laughs> they can almost, what, command it from me. Father God is the same way. When he sees us operating in unity, in agreement, in the place of prayer, it has such a profound impact and influence upon his heart. Listen, we can basically command a blessing from him. Right? But he says something that was so powerful. Dutch did, Dutch did, this professor. He said, not only can you agree in prayer with the person sitting next to you, you can also agree in prayer with the generation behind you. He talked about how he's at his alma mater, where I work, Christ for the Nations Institute, and he's leading the student body there in prayer. And while he's leading them in prayer for revival, the Holy Spirit says, Dutch, I want you to come in agreement with the prayers of the founder of this school. And he thought, okay, God, is this really you? Because that man's dead. <laughs> He's been dead for more than 30 years, and I know you're not talking to the dead. And the Holy Spirit said, but his prayers aren't dead. They're still alive before my throne. There are things I promised this man in prayer that I want to release into this school right now, but I can't do it yet because I need this generation to come to agree with that generation. I want to release the synergy of the ages. Isn't that powerful? So it's like Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. In other words, God will start something in one generation. He says, Abraham, I'm going to give you a nation. 
Then he raises up an Isaac, then a Jacob, breaks that Jacob thing off that boy, makes him Israel because he promised this man back here a nation. And when he did it for Israel, it was just as if he'd done it for Abraham. So finally, Hebrews eleven thirty nine and 40 finally makes sense to me where it says, all these by faith, talking about the great heroes of faith, they were proved for their faith, but they did not receive what was promised. So that apart from us, they will be made perfect without us. In other words, there's this whole company of people in the balcony of heaven, your grandmother, your great-grandfather and mine, all there. They're looking over the balcony of heaven. They're saying, hey, y'all, don't mess this thing up. Simpsons, Fords, Lockets, don't mess this up because God has started something in us that he wants to complete exponentially through you. Jesus said it best when he said, what greater works than these are you going to do because I'm going to the Father. And so he'll start something in one generation and complete it exponentially through future generations to come. Right? So they helped me understand Psalm 133 in a deeper light. Because guess what? Not only was <clears throat> Psalm 133, not only is it about agreeing with what God started in our today, it's also about us agreeing with what we started in our yesterday. I say that because the garments of the priesthood were passed down from one generation to the next. The same one garment. In other words, we don't understand it because when we anoint somebody today, we take a little oil, put it on our finger, and we thump them on the forehead, right, and call it a day. I did a little backhand like I slapped them in the face, too. Don't do that. That's not the most Christian thing to do. But <clears throat> that's not what they did back then. According to scholars like Jack Hayford and others, they would take a whole gallon of that thick anointing oil and would pour it all over their high priest's head. And as the oil dripped down, it dripped down from his head onto his beard and onto his robe. Listen, that one robe was then passed down to the next high priest. But then as he received an anointing for his today, the new high priest did, to be relevant for his today, as the oil dripped down, the new oil from the day mingled with the anointing from the past on the same robe. And that same one robe was passed down to the next high priest. In other words, there's supposed to be a momentum-building anointing that goes from generation to generation to generation to generation in the place of prayer, the saturation of the ages. If you, everybody's looking for the next woman there, I'll lose something, or the, the next uh, purpose-driven this or that, right? Those are great titles. Those are great authors. But listen, God's not after originality. You know what he's after right now? A successor. And to a successor, he released a double portion of anointing on them that is so powerful and not only make them impactful in this generation, but make them a springboard for future generations to come. So I start hearing this concept. I'm thinking about my own unfinished business and my own family. And then I remember this kettle pot in my family. So like I said, it was used by the slaves in my family. They used it for cooking. They used it for washing clothes. But secretly, it was used for prayer. They were owned by a slave master in Lake Providence, Louisiana, who would beat them for any reason. And actually, prayer was one of them. Now, the irony is that they wanted, them to be, they wanted the, the slaves there to be Christians because they knew that Christian slaves made better workers. But they would pervert the gospel and say, slaves, be obedient to your masters if you want to go to heaven. Now, that may make sense to us because we know that we're, of course, saved by grace through faith, not of works. It's a gift of God so that no one should boast. But it was easy to, to teach slaves that back then because it was against the law for slaves to read and write. It was also against the law for, teach, uh, for anybody to teach slaves how to read and write. The irony is that while he wanted to be Christians, he didn't want them to pray because he felt like prayer would foster hope. And if they got hopeful, he felt like they would try to run away. So this man would literally beat them if he heard them praying on his plantation. Give an example of how cruel he was. We had a story passed down in our family about a great uncle named Uncle Willie who 
decided to go fishing without asking, so they strapped him to a tree and put both arms and legs around either side of that tree, so they thought they'd make an example out of him. They thought they'd whip and beat him for not asking to go fishing, so they took this leather strap, which was shredded, which had rocks and nails and glass attached to it, something like the cat and nine tails, and they beat this slave forefather of ours until all the flesh was pulled out of his back. The family, in an effort to save his life, they took this huge sheet, put lard or grease on it, and wrapped it around his body to stop the flow of the blood. But in spite of the efforts, he bled to death and died. So that's how cruel slavery was on this plantation. And if you heard these folks praying, he would beat them as well. But listen, the people who had this pot in my family, they were Christians, and they decided to pray anyway. So what they would do is they have a prayer meeting on their plantation late at night to make sure no one would see their, their prayer meeting. They would sneak into a barn at night to have the prayer meeting while everyone was asleep. But to make sure that their prayers were not heard, they used this pot. So this is what they would do is they take this pot into that cabin and they would turn it upside down or invert it so it'd be suspended, to, so it'd be flat on the ground. Then they would take about three or four rocks and prop up the edges so it'd be suspended off the ground about an inch or two. They would then prostrate themselves on the ground and put their lips in between the opening between the ground and the kettle so that the kettle pop muffled their voices as they prayed through the night. And the story that was passed down with this pot is that they didn't think they would see freedom in their time, so they prayed for the freedom of their children in the next generation. So one day, freedom comes. There's this young teenage girl decides to keep this pot and that story in our family. Now, why would she do that? She's probably thinking about all those who are dead and gone, who risked their lives to pray for her. She's probably thinking about all those who are too old to enjoy the freedom she's about to embrace. So she keeps this pot and this story in our family. So she keeps the pot and the story, and she passes it on to Harriet Lockett. Harriet Lockett gives it to her daughter, Noah Lockett. Noah Lockett gives it to her son, William Ford Sr., who then gave it to William Ford Jr., who then gave it to me, William Ford III. So I'm thinking, oh, my God. <laughs> thinking about the heart that God had given me for revival. I'm thinking about also <clears throat> uh, the heart that I have for the next generation. And it hits me. I'm, this kettle is in my family. passed down. I'm thinking, oh, my God, to whom much is given, much is required. And listen, they didn't risk their lives for our spiritual freedom so we could, they didn't risk our lives for our physical freedom so we can be bound spiritually today. This generation, we have to contend for it. But then I thought about the privilege. I thought, oh my God, I can agree with the prayers of my forefathers for the freedom of this next generation. And I thought about the exponential results that can be released and created from that. And so I was sharing this with uh, Dutch Sheets. We, by this time, we became friends and we talked about doing a prayer journey. And we were thinking about using this pot to represent the prayer bowls in heaven. In Revelation 5 and 8 said there are bowls in heaven full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. Listen, they use this pot, use this pot as an acoustic means to keep their prayers from being heard, but literally over your family. There's a prayer bowl over your family. There's a prayer bowl over this community. There's a prayer bowl over Brandon. There's a prayer bowl over Florida. God's looking for a new generation to resource the prayer bowls in heaven once again. He said, God, you want me to use this cast iron pot to represent the prayer bowls in heaven? He said about that time, he had his Bible beside him, and it falls open to Zechariah 14 and 20. Part B of that verse says, And the cooking pots in the house of the Lord shall be like the bowls before the altar. 
So in other words, here's this cooking pot that's called muffled prayers. The same way as a bowl in heaven that catches our prayers like incense. Then that shit, this wouldn't it be just like God in his justice and irony? They use the prayers of a slave generation to free a nation up for revival again. Yes, come on. So I'm glad he said generation because it wasn't just black Christian slaves praying back then. There were white Christian abolitionists who knew that if any person was a slave was a Christian, they knew that person was their brother. Many of those abolitionists had their houses burned. They were shot, they were killed, and they were lynched, just like the slaves were, because they chose to suffer with the people of God rather than compromise and wink at slavery. And so they helped me understand something. See, they were willing to fight for people who didn't look like them because they knew they were connected by because of the blood of Jesus. And they laid their lives down for their Christian slave brother. So I realized something. Said, oh, my God. See, if my ancestors had been Muslims or Buddhists, because I'm a Christian, I wouldn't have any connection to this pot or this history. But listen, because they were believers, none of these my ancestors and forefathers, but they're yours too. In other words, this is a shared inheritance. In other words, I'm just as much a spiritual son of Charles Finney and Jonathan Edwards as you are of Martin Luther King and, we, of we, and William Seymour or C.H. Mason, right? And when we come together in that kind of unity, that kind of agreement, listen, something powerful happens. The oil begins to flow. Anointings begin to mingle. Yokes get broken over generations. Because, listen, there was a godly remnant of people back then Black Christian slaves, white Christian abolitionists, they prayed into being the first and the second great awakening. Had it not been for those revivals, slavery wouldn't have been ended in this nation. There was a Supreme Court law back then called Dred Scott, which said that slaves had no rights in the courtroom. Everybody thought that law was settled. It was settled law, and this this was the fate of uh, every slave in the nation as a result of that. But listen, because God sent revival, that law got broken the hearts of the whole country. So powerful that people in the north were willing to fight for people in the south that did not look like them. So listen, the same God who broke the power of Dred Scott through revival, he can send another revival and break the power of Roe v. Wade. He can put an end to systemic poverty. He can stop our schools from being in a pipeline to prison. He can shut down mass incarceration. He can put an end to the opiate crisis in the suburbs or put an end to the, to the crack houses in the inner city. Listen, he's just looking for a new generation of people who will drop their agendas and come together and believe. Listen, we'll go more into it tonight, but listen, the whole thing with the race issue is connected to eugenics and other things we don't like to talk about, and it's way bigger than we realize, all right? In other words, I'll just put it to you like this. Here's what the Lord said to me. He said, William, if I heard the silent whispers of slaves underneath kettle pots, how much more so do I hear the silent screams of babies being aborted in your nation? And I realized that the, th- the litmus test for authentic revival back then was the ending of slavery. The litmus test for authentic revival today, honestly, would be the ending of abortion in our day. It's the greatest moral dilemma that we have because here's the deal. When the people that you cannot see, talking about the child in the womb, when the people that you cannot see become optional, it's inevitable that some of the people that you can see will be marginalized, even to the place of elimination. 
God weeps over all the shedding of innocent blood. In other words, the same God who wept over Botham Jean in Dallas and wept over, he also wept over Philando Castile in Minnesota. But he also wept over the five police officers that were killed in Dallas. And he weeps over 60 million babies that have been aborted in this nation. He weeps over all the shedding of innocent blood. So some people say, of course, black lives matter. I get where they're going. Some other people say, all lives matter. I know what you're talking about. God is saying, drill down deeper. Life matters. And we have to fight for the dignity of the people that we cannot see and the people that we can't see as well. Fight for the image of the Imago Dei. Fight for the inherent value of every person, right? So God began to speak to me about how he wanted to do this with this powerful dream that he gave me about Martin Luther King. And he dealt with my own issues regarding this. And this dream about Martin Luther King just so happened I was going to do a prayer service at the church Dr. King used to pastor at, Dexter Avenue Baptist Church. But the night before I go there, I have this dream where myself and the, my, my, my mentor, Lou Engel, we were driving to Dexter Avenue Baptist Church. But in the dream, we had to first go pick up Martin Luther King. So it's a dream, right? So in the dream, Dr. King's alive. <laughs> and we go by this house to pick him up. And in the dream, he has this huge white duffel bag with black handles on it. And in the dream, he starts emptying all this dark garbage out of that duffel bag. And he throws the bag down violently, and he comes to get into this vehicle with us. And in the dream, I thought to myself, man, that bag could make a nice souvenir. I know, I'm starstruck even in a dream, right? <laughs> I'm so carnal. God help me. So I'm thinking, you know, he went to Morehouse College. I went to Morehouse College. The bag could make a nice souvenir. So in the dream, I get out of this vehicle to go pick up the baggage, but before I could touch it, Dr. King grabs me by my shoulders and he says, no, do not go back and pick that up. And in the dream, he starts telling me what I need to do to heal the race issue in this nation. I begin to weep in the dream. I wake up, my pillow was soaked with tears. I've been weeping in prayer the whole night. I didn't even realize it. Shared the dream with my friend, Lou Engel. He begins to weep and we're like, God, Remind me, what did Dr. King say to me? Lord, what is the interpretation for this dream? And the Lord said to me, William, the white bag with the black handles, that would be the interpretation for your dream. And all of a sudden, it hit me. The, right, the black handles represented how I, as a black man, and how, as an African-American, how I've been handling my white baggage. God was saying to me, William, get rid of your white baggage. You've been carrying it for way too long. I know what God was putting his finger on because... I know what it's like at 13 years old, along with three friends of mine, coming out of a convenience store, we were chased by a car full of white guys who did not know us. They called us the N-word, said they were going to shoot and kill us. They chased us for over an hour and a half. They were probably just joyriding, but we were terrified. I know what it's like at 19 years old to uh, be falsely accused of shoplifting, and when the police officer couldn't find anything on me, he uh, you know, tried to provoke me into a fight just to have a reason to take me in. I know what it's like in my 30s to get my first house in the suburbs and the same police officer for the first three months stopped me every week just for driving while black. I know what that feels like, but you know what I've done? For every person, every white person, every police officer in that region, before I ever had one conversation with them, I put those three stories and others over everybody. And I saw everybody through that filter. I stigmatized every person with those three experiences. It's the devil's diabolical plot. It's Revelation 12 where it says that the devil is what? The accuser of the brethren. The word accuser is a powerful word. It comes from the word kategoros in the Greek. 
And it's the word we, from where we get the word, English word category. In other words, the diabolical plot of the devil is to get us to categorize or stereotype each other so that before we can ever have a conversation with each other, we take some bad stories or bad narratives and put it on every person. God was saying to me, William, get rid of your unforgiveness. Get rid of your, your resentment. Get rid of your bitterness. Get rid of any guilt manipulation. Get rid of your white baggage so we can all get a new vehicle that can bring revival and justice for everybody. So church, the question for all of us today is this, what color is your baggage? God's saying, listen, get rid of it because we need each other because only a united church can heal a divided nation. So, yes. So I went to Dr. King's pulpit and I had this book, Testament of Hope, all these different speeches and writings from Civil rights movement, it falls open to, the page, to this page that says, I have a dream speech. I start reading that speech like a prayer from Dr. King's old pulpit, and I get to this part where it says, I have a dream that one day the sons of former slaves and the sons of former slave owners will be able to sit together at the table of brotherhood. And I thought, God, whatever happened to the people that owned our family where this pot came from? And for the first time, I start praying for them, but little did I know, Mr. Poema was going to weave my life together with somebody else in a powerful way. So Lou Engle asked me to share this story at the Lincoln Memorial, January 17, 2005, and that's where I meet my good friend. Come on up. This is Matt Lockett, <laughs> executive director of the uh, Justice House of Prayer and Bound for Life in Washington, D.C. Come on up, Matt. Good morning. We're going to disappear in the trees. I know, right? <laughs> it's such an honor to be with you all this morning, and I appreciate um, the willingness and the desire to even have a, a, a message like this, and I just want to honor this, this church as uh, leaders in the community, and as uh, really, I, I believe, the tip of the spear for what God wants to do, particularly on the racial issue in America, what he's doing right here at Arise Church. So thank you. It's an honor to be here with you this morning. So it's story time. You didn't know you were coming to story time this morning, did you? We got lots of stories. So Will told you his part of the story, and he brought you up to a specific day. It was January 17th, 2005. I'm actually going to start right there and, uh, and hopefully just kind of tell you how my story weaves into Will's story. And I have to start there, but actually back up one year exactly to the day. It was January 17th, 2004. That's actually where it begins for me. And something really unexpected and tragic happened on that day when my father passed away. And we didn't know that was going to happen. And so I'm looking around the room. I see some mature faces. I see some young faces. So some of you have lived through that experience where you've lost uh, your parents. Uh, many of you have not yet gone through that. Guess what? You're going to. It's coming. It's inevitable at some point. And for me, this is what I learned that I was unprepared for, is that you spend your entire life hearing the stories, receiving the stories, and everything else that your parents do for you, uh, but when you lose them, something profound happens. You actually now receive a mantle. The mantle of storytelling passes from one generation to the next. You become the steward of the story. You understand that? 
And so that's important. That's an important moment in your life because you have to start looking at the history of your family, right? Now, there's good stuff. Every family's got good stuff. Every family's got bad stuff. And you have to look at that, and you have to make sense out of that story. See, I'm a believer. That means I believe something. I'm, I, I believe that my life has purpose. I believe your life has purpose. I believe that God has a purpose, right? So that's what me, being a believer means. We believe something. So, so I don't think anything just happens. I don't think there are really accidents like Will was talking about. I believe that, that even the bad experiences, the good and the bad in our past, that, that only a Christian can make sense out of that. Apart from God, you cannot understand the story that God is telling, even through the bad things. You know God will let you go through bad stuff just so he can cook a prayer? No, really, did you catch that? He'll let you go through the fire just so he can cook a prayer and get something out of you that you didn't have previous knowledge of. So that you can empathize with someone else. So that you can actually be a remedy and a balm and a salve to a pain that someone else has. You know, so now all of a sudden as believers, we can look at even the painful experiences and make sense out of it. So when I lost dad, you know, I had to uh, start asking some big questions. The, the ones that need really big answers like, who am I? Why am I here? What am I supposed to be doing with my life? Guys, that's a really good thing to ask of your heavenly father. Maybe your earthly father doesn't have an answer to that, but your heavenly father does. And it doesn't matter if you're a teenager at 16 or if you're a person well-seasoned in your 60s, it's good to ask that question. You need your heavenly father to tell you who you are and why you're here. Amen? It's really quiet in here, church. I need to know that you agree with that statement. Okay. So I decided that, that I, I needed to do some digging. Now, at that time, after I lost dad, it became really important to me to find out where the lockets came from. I wanted to know where my family came from. And that was a really difficult question for us because we couldn't get beyond my dad's grandfather. There had been a loss of records, a loss of the story. And so no one in my dad's generation knew anything about where we came from. Now, how many of you have looked into your family genealogies? Okay, look around. There's actually a high percentage of hands that went up, more than what I see most of the time. Usually I'll ask that question in a church this size and maybe two or three hands will go up. You know what that means? It means we're losing stories right now. We're actually in the process of forgetting where we came from. And I believe that God has started some unfinished business in our yesterday and that he is revealing some things right now for us to discover so that that exponential release can happen in our generation. And so for us, my dad, man, he was one of 16 siblings. Poor mamma. <laughs> I got cousins on top of cousins, and yet nobody had been able to figure out anything about our family history. And so I was a little arrogant at that time, and I decided I'm going to get the breakthrough where everyone else has failed. And so I started digging, and guess what? I hit every roadblock that everyone in the family had ever hit, and I didn't know anything else. So I was finishing that year more frustrated than I started because I didn't know anything new. And, and it was during that time, kind of a low emotional point for me, and I've been a Christian since I was 15 years old, but, 
But it was just a really difficult time in my life, and it was then that I had a dream. Now, we're talking about dreams this morning a lot. Certainly, Dr. King had a dream of his heart and his life, but Will talked about having a dream while he was asleep. Do we have any dreamers in the room that you, you go to sleep? You know what I'm talking about? You go to sleep, and you feel like God's talking to you, and pizza doesn't get credit for it? That's what I'm talking about. I had one of those kinds of dreams, and this dream came from somewhere else. <laughs> the way I... I, I explain that is that it didn't just bubble up from the day, you know, where you get these dreams where all your, you know, your, your junk just comes up, you know. This one came from somewhere else. And so the Lord gave me this dream about how he was going to end abortion in America and how he was going to do that through day and night prayer. Now, you're maybe sitting there wondering, like, why are, why are we talking about abortion so much this morning? You have to come tonight. We're going to un. I think lift the, the curtain on this a little bit more and God's going to reveal like a whole lot more about how this stuff's intertwined. But for me, this was my on-ramp. So I had this dream about the ending of abortion, day and night prayer. Now there's three things about this dream that messed me up. Number one, I didn't know anything about abortion at that time in my life. And maybe you can relate to that. It just, man, it just wasn't important to me. It wasn't uh, my focus. Can you relate to that statement? Maybe, you know, that, the, you know, somebody else can worry about that. It's not my focus. I've since learned that just because it wasn't important to me doesn't mean it wasn't important to God. So I didn't know anything about abortion. Number two, I didn't know anything about prayer. Now, I'm being very honest right now. Like every Christian thinks they know about prayer. It's easy, right? Everybody knows how to pray until you got to lead a prayer meeting. <laughs> then it takes about five minutes to figure out, I don't know anything about prayer, right? My experience with prayer is that's what you did on Wednesday night for an hour and you spent 45 minutes talking. 15 minutes praying for somebody's grandma with a broken hip. You know what I'm talking about? Oh, it got quiet again in here, Will. It's real quiet this morning. <laughs> All right, a lot of you do. I didn't. I didn't know Lou Engel. So this dream messed with me. I had to do something about this dream. And that, that alone is a weird thought that you would get a dream and feel like you have to respond and do something to it. But I couldn't get away from this. So I started looking into it. I found out there's a real guy named Lou Engel. He's really doing this thing with prayer. And I reached out to him. I got the phone number of somebody that worked with him. And I called him. I said, hey, I had a dream. And he took me seriously. What a weird thing. And he, and, and he asked what the dream was. And I told him. And, and he said, this is very interesting. You've just dreamt exactly what the Lord is sending us to do. We're going to Washington, D.C. We have a lot of young people. And we're going to pray for the ending of abortion. We're going to do a gathering on the steps of the Lincoln Memorial on an MLK Day Maybe you should come to it. God might have something for you there. Now, come on, guys. This is weird. Like, I lived on the other side of the country. You want, God, do you want me to take time off work and spend hard-earned money to go to a prayer meeting on the other side of the country? And you start, like, setting these ridiculous conditions to get confirmation. Do you guys play the confirmation game? Oh, now, now you're laughing. <laughs> Right, so you, you, know, you get these like, ridiculous, like, complex set of circumstances where you're like, okay, God, now if, you're, if it's really you and you're really talking to me, then I need you to really do this. And then you just kind of step back and you wait. And, you know, the Bible says we're not supposed to test God, but God's like, ah, I'm going to do it anyway, and he does it. And you look at it. And you're like, okay, but if it's really you, then I need you to do this. You know what I'm talking about. Well, it was one of those things. God just 
confirmed it over and over that I was to go to this gathering. And I brought a picture of it. I want to show you this. This is from the actual day. If you could put up the first image. This is that prayer meeting. So you can see the Lincoln Memorial in the background. And uh, uh, if you recognize Lou Engle, he's on the right side there. And on the left, there's a blue sleeve. If you follow it out to the end of the fingertips, you will see Will Ford. So the steps of the Lincoln Memorial, where Dr. King gave the I Have a Dream speech, that's the first place that Will Ford and I ever came together. Now, for me, that was a journey. Not only did God confirm it, but I had gotten this recording in the, in the months leading up to it of Lou Engle preaching. And I don't remember the message, honestly. But he made this one statement that pierced my heart. And I want to share it with you this morning. I think it's going to touch you. He said this. He said, what moves you? What is your passion? Stay close to the burning bush in your life. What burns in you and never goes out, when you find something like that, draw close to it, and you'll hear your name called. Now, of course, he's talking about Moses. Moses has this burning bush experience. But think about what was really going on in that moment. So here's Moses taking care of somebody else's sheep on the backside of the desert for four decades. Right? Every day is just like all the other days, but one day is unlike all the other days. One day, God sets a bush on fire, and it doesn't go out. I'm so thankful that God can set something on fire in our lives, and it won't go out. Amen. And so Moses sees it, and it's not enough that he just saw it and kept going. He has to lean into his holy moment. Listen, guys, we have to lean into our moments with God. Moments matter. I believe a life can change in a moment. A nation can change in a moment. When we respond to these moments in God, and so it says that when Moses turned aside and said, I will see this great wonder, then God calls out to him his name, Moses. It's only then. So it's so important that we lean into our moments. And then so, so Lou's talking about this, and, he, and, and, and think about this too with Moses. I want to point this out since we've got a little extra time. Moses leans into his personal moment. And I don't, we don't know if he knew it or not, but see, when he responds in his personal moment, God back in Genesis 15 had already told Abraham, your descendants are going to be oppressed for 400 years. So here's Moses, before he's a deliverer, leaning into his personal moment, but he's actually leaning into, he's entering into the unfinished business of God, that God's going to raise him up to be a deliverer, and a whole nation is going to get set free. Do you see that? It's so important that we respond in our individual personal moments with God because we don't know what God's about to release. And I want to say this about America right now. August 25th was the 400th anniversary of slavery in America. What if we are in the jailbreak moment right now? Do you hear me? What if we're in that 400-year jailbreak moment where God's wanting to set an entire nation free of oppression and it depends on you and me leaning into our holy moment with God? I'm convinced that that's where we are at right now as a nation. So, so uh, uh, Lou's referencing that. I had one prayer that I was praying going to that prayer meeting. God, I need to hear my name called. Painful year, not knowing anything about the family Showing up at a prayer meeting, not knowing why I was there. I didn't understand why we had to pray outside. In January, for eight hours. (laughs) It was zero degrees that day. Very, very cold day. But that night, 
we gathered at a church and there was a guest speaker, it was Will Ford, and he brought out that kettle and he told the story that he just shared with you this morning. And, and I was a mess that day. It was one year to the day that my father had died. And I'm listening and here I know nothing about my family history and he's sharing this story of this rich spiritual heritage about the slaves who prayed and contended for this nation. And I'm so moved, but I'm a mess. And that's when he told the part of the story that I was unprepared for. He said that that kettle was handed down to Harriet Lockett, who gave it to Nora Lockett, to Wilford Sr., to Wilford Jr., to Wilford III. And I heard my name called. What was the prayer I had been praying? I had no idea God would be that literal with answering that prayer. But, you know, it, it, it got my attention. So I went up to Will after the meeting, and we started comparing notes. And he said, you know, how do your locket spell it, with one T or two? And we spelled it with two. And he's like, oh, well, our locket spelled it with one. Well, where are your lockets from? And best we could figure, it was Kentucky, but we didn't honestly know. And he said, well, our lockets were all the way down in Louisiana. And it just seemed like a coincidence. But it was enough. I'm telling you, it was enough. God actually ended up calling me out of the marketplace, out of my career. And I moved to Washington, D.C. to join with Lou Engle. And I became a full-time missionary in Washington, D.C. 15 years ago. How many of you have been to D.C.? You want to talk about the upside down. It's stranger things right now, man. I'm telling you. It's weird stuff going on. Anyway, you should come to D.C. All the demons do. It's fun. <laughs> so I've been in D.C. there for, for 15 years. Joined with Lou Engel. And Will and I struck up a friendship that developed quickly into a relationship and a brotherhood. And guys, we have just been running together for 15 years, just doing life together. I love this man. He loves me. I love his family. He fights for my dreams. This is kind of how I think it's supposed to work. And I'm thankful that with you, Will, it's effortless. I love you, man. But then I got thrown into this world of prayer that I was also unprepared for. And I want to share with you another dream that God gave us at the beginning of our house of prayer there on Capitol Hill. And it's th this part, this dream is very significant to the story. So I want you to catch the details. In the dream, we are in a huge building that's filled with courtrooms. And we are being led from one courtroom to the next. And the Lord spoke in the dream and said, either you deal with Roe v. Wade in your courts or I will deal with it in mine. That's a pretty serious statement. You feel the, the weight of that statement. And at the end of this long hall was a huge courtroom, and on the door, it said Appomattox Courthouse. Now, does anybody know the significance of that name? Most people don't, because you slept through American history class like I did. <laughs> All right, so here's my little American History 101 uh, uh, Cliff Notes version here. So we fought a civil war. It's 1865. General Robert E. Lee is cut off in the city of Richmond, Virginia, and in Petersburg there, the Union Army, or the Confederate Army is cut off, and the Union Army breaks through, and he has to retreat across the state of Virginia, and he's trying to outrun him, but he gets to the middle of the state, he gets literally stuck in the mud, and he, on April 6th, fought his last battle. And he fought it in the front yard of a farmhouse there. And then three days later, this is the part we're most familiar with. On April 9th, 1865, he signed unconditional surrender at a place called Appomattox Courthouse. So there's your history lesson. But see, what happened is God took that history language, pulled it out of the past, and he injected it into our today. 
and began to speak about his heart on another issue. And we began to feel the weight and the gravity of that because now the, we're starting to process the reality that the way God felt about slavery and the shedding of that innocent blood, he feels the same way about what's happening in our generation. So we've had one prayer all of these years. God, we don't want to go back to Appomattox. Do you understand that, that prayer? Does that make sense to you? See, Appomattox represents the end of the war. The bloodiest thing this nation's ever experienced. 720,000 lives lost. And so our prayer is, God, we don't want you to have to deal with it. Give us the opportunity to do what you want us to do. And so for all these years, we've been praying for the courts and contending for that. And so fast forward. Lou Engel was going to do a prayer gathering in the state of Virginia. And he called and he said, hey, if we're going to do this, first we have to go pray at the real Appomattox courthouse. So it's it's been memorialized there. You can actually go in the McLean farmhouse where Lee surrendered to Grant. We went in the room where that happened, and we prayed for the nation there. And then as we were leaving, we went into a little visitor's center, and Lou Engel and I stepped up to a bookcase side by side, and he grabs the first book off the shelf that caught his eye, and he opens it to the first random page. What is it about God and making books fall open? <laughs> like he just keeps doing it over and over and over. So he opens it to this book, to a random page, and I brought an image of it. If you could put up that next slide, I want you to see it. It's called The Last Shot, The Battle of Lockett's Farm. So I'm having another holy moment where I'm seeing my name called. I didn't know what it was. Began to research this. You can look it up for yourself. So that battle, the last battle that Lee fought that I mentioned, it happened in the front yard of a family named Lockett, spelled with two T's. And would you agree that this, this probably means something? This can't be just another coincidence. Listen, when you're on the God storyline, nothing is an accident. God just keeps revealing in increments so that you get the message. And so I began to ponder, what does this mean? Found out there's a real place called Lockett's Farm. It's been preserved from the day of battle. And so if you want to go to the next image, I want you to see it. That's the Lockett Farmhouse. If we could get up close, I could show you it's still riddled with bullet holes from the day of battle. And there's the historical marker in the front yard. Here Lee fought his last battle. Guys, this is the real place. And I went there to, to, to try to follow this storyline that God's revealing. But here's what happened that's stunning. It was right about that same time that my brother, my older brother Bob, he got the breakthrough on the genealogy kind of suddenly and unexpectedly, and he called me. He's like, you're not going to believe this. I got us all the way back to 1645. We came in as settlers through Virginia, actually just a couple of decades after the original settlements there at Jamestown. And I said, Virginia, man, have I got a Virginia story for you? And I started to share with him the story about the end of the Civil War, and he stops me, and he says, that's not that place down by Sailor's Creek. That's this whole region right here. I say, yeah, that's exactly where it is. He says, oh, I just found the documents on it. That was our family. So think about this. After years of praying the Appomattox dream that God gave us, I found out that the last battle of the Civil War that ended slavery happened in my family's front yard. It's called the last shot. So I'm thinking this has to mean something. So we went there. I walked in, the man that lives there let us come in, my, me and my prayer team, and I was stunned and framed and hanging on the living room wall was the locket genealogy. I get up my brother's research, 
It's an exact match. This was my family. And he began to ask me, what do you know about your family? Which wasn't much. And he confirmed, you know, some of you guys left here and went to Kentucky. But then he said some left and went to the deep south and some were involved in very historical events. But then he said this, some left and went to Louisiana. And then he said, you know, those handwritten census ledgers, sometimes they would accidentally misspell the name and drop one of the T's. Now you're thinking exactly what I was thinking. This can't be possible, can it? Like what I'm thinking right now, like God, this isn't real. This couldn't possibly be true. And you start second guessing all this stuff, but should we be surprised at this point, especially that the Mr. Poema, the God of the workmanship would be telling a story so unique that I believe that he's revealing it now for a purpose. Amen. So, Will, why don't you share what we discovered? Matt flew from, from D.C. to Dallas, and he just laid all this information out, and we started thinking what y'all thinking, right? So I remember that I had a genealogist look at my information years ago, and he found a man named Isaac Lockett in the 1870 census. 1870, slavery ends 1865. So this is five years after slavery, this census. And... In that sense, it's Isaac Lockett. He's 90 years old, so probably this is a place where he was a slave. But in that census, he said he was originally from, Louis, not Louisiana, but from Virginia. So the only Lockett family, one of the few that I could find at that time period, was Matt's family in that area. And slaves always took on the last name of the people who owned them, remember? All right? So if he came originally from Virginia as a Lockett, that was our connection. Here he is down in Lake Providence at that time. So that led to another year and a half of research. And here's what we learned through empirical evidence. It was Matt's family that owned my family where this kettle pot came from. So think about it. Here's my family down in Lake Providence praying for the ending of slavery. Why Lake Providence? Maybe the lake of God's providence is way deeper and wider than we know. Maybe the color of your skin, the family you're born into, maybe God has a redemptive purpose for it all so they can reveal forth his glory. Here they are praying for the ending of slavery down in Lake Providence, but then all the way up at the farmhouse where the people used to own them, slavery comes to the end in their front yard. But then because he's the God of the past and the future, he says, you know what? I'm going to heal history by weaving two people from those same family lines together, Matt and I, so they can war against injustice in their day and cry out for awakening in their time. They're powerful. Let's share, share with them last we find out. I invite you to come back this evening. Is it at 6 p.m.? To come back at 6 because we want to uh, share more on this point right now that I'm about to mention. See, it wasn't the story that connected Will and I. And I kind of believe that if we had known the story at the beginning, we'd have blown up. You know, or worse, we would have taken the story and manipulated it for unrighteous purposes. But God let us develop a relationship together for a decade. Do you understand? We prayed for 10 years before we knew any of this. Praying for racial healing in America, only to then get to a point where God lifts, begins to lift the curtain a little bit. And he's like, let me show you something I've been working on for a minute. And we're like, 
There's no way. But see, then he lifts the curtain a little bit more. As painful as it was to find out that my connection to the story was to that of the slave owner, God had more unfinished business he wanted to reveal. So we found out through more research that in the previous generation to them, revival had come to the state of Virginia during the Revolutionary War. And what I found out through the writings is that when revival broke out, one of my forebears, Daniel Lockett, got swept into the revival and became a Methodist circuit rider. Do we have any uh, uh, recovering Methodists in the room? <laughs> I see a few hands going up. I got saved in the Methodist church. Praise God. I love the history of the Methodist church because when they began in, this, in the colonies, even before we were a nation, when, when they began, see these circuit riders, these Horseback preachers were carrying the gospel to the frontier, but here's what they did. They have Bibles and hymnals in the saddlebags, but they also carried a legal document called a manumission form because at that time, all of the Methodists were abolitionists. So think about this. You get a, 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 an altar call for people to accept Christ, and you respond to that call, but then you're also told that it is for freedom that Christ sets you free, and you're given a legal document to set your slaves free at the same time. How'd you like to be in that altar call? Listen, we know that is exactly what happened because everywhere those circuit rider guys went, the population of freed slaves exploded. And I don't think we fully grasp that, but that is the power of the gospel to not just transform the, the human heart, but to actually reshape the world around us so that the world lines up with righteousness and justice. Amen? And, and I want to say this to you as a congregation, as Leaders in this community, you have that ability for the gospel of Jesus Christ, not just to be good for you, but to actually have an outworking and an outreach that reshapes the world around you. Amen. So think about it. So, yeah, Matt had family members that owned slaves. We also had family members that uh, secretly taught slaves how to read and write. We'll talk about that in a second, but also had this abolitionist in his family. In other words, he had generational curses and generational blessings working in the same family. I have the same thing in my family. I have family members that are in prison that done things that, you know, we're not proud of. I've done stupid stuff, but thank God for the blood of Jesus, right? And <laughs> we had these people back here contending for revival and the end of slavery, releasing generational blessings. We have generational blessings and curses or these dominating themes, these dominated storylines that are in all, enough, all of our families. But what God is shouting to America right now is this. What storyline do we want to be a part of? What storyline are we going to attach ourselves to in our family? The healing or the hurt, the blessing or the curse, what storyline do we want to be a part of? Right? Share with them this last example. Last story, and then you got to come back at 6 p.m., amen? So I want to give you an example of what it looks like to cho choose a different storyline. So even after slavery ended, guess what? It still wasn't very popular for former slaves to learn how to read and write. They would do it in secret because they believed there would be consequences. And so two years after slavery ended... There's a former slave trying to teach her young son how to read and write. And in walks Lucy Lockett, one of my forebears. Only instead of consequences, she says, no, what you've chosen, she told the mother, what you've chosen to do is very wise. And so she actually gives her assistance to begin to tutor this young boy how to read and write. And the only reason we know that story is because it's in his autobiography. That young boy was Robert Russell Moton. He went on to replace Booker T. Washington as president of Tuskegee Institute. And if put up the last image, number eight, if you could. He was an educational advisor to presidents, and in 1922, he gave the dedication speech of the Lincoln Memorial. 
where 41 years later, Dr. King would stand on that spot and give the I Have a Dream speech. And 41 years after that, Will and I would meet on that exact same spot for the first time. Isn't that amazing? So think about it. This happened to two guys who were led by dreams to a prayer meeting at the Lincoln Memorial on MLK Celebration Day to the place where Dr. King said in his I Have a Dream speech, I have a dream that one day the sons of former slaves and the sons of former slave owners will be able to sit down together at the table of brotherhood. Maybe the dream speech wasn't poetry. Maybe it was prophecy. Maybe there's a dream king called the King of Kings who Father is still answering his son's prayer. Father, I pray that they would be one so that your glory could come, so that the world would believe. Maybe God hasn't forgotten about the prayers of your mama and your papa, your mother and your father. Maybe there's still hope for America because there's a God who's watching over another storyline and weaving something together more powerful than we can imagine. Maybe we all have unfinished business. I believe we do. I believe there's still room at the table. There's still room at the table of brotherhood. But there's no room for the souvenirs of bitterness and unforgiveness. There's no room at the table for that. But there's room at the table. Here's how you come to the table. See, I talked about my Uncle Willie who unwillingly gave his back to be beaten. But Jesus Christ willingly gave his back to be beaten for us all. And by his stripes, he's healing history. And by his blood, he's uniting us. So yeah, you may have generational curses in your family. Yeah, that alcoholic thing that just runs through your family, that drug addict thing that just runs through your family. But listen, go back a little bit further. There was somebody praying for you. Maybe it was two weeks ago. I know two days ago in this church, people were praying for you. 200 years ago, somebody was praying. 2,000 years ago, I know Jesus had you on his mind. He's bringing you into a storyline that's way bigger than you realize. Father, we pray right now. God, break the curses, just those sin patterns, those iniquitous patterns in our family, God, just the things that just happen over and over again, Lord, from the hatred to the bigotry to the racism, Lord, whether it's, Lord, the Ku Klux Klan or the Nation of Islam, break it out of our family, God. Hate will not be this dominating theme over our families any longer. We don't want it. witchcraft, iniquity, other things like sin patterns, adultery, fornication, lust. Break it, Lord. We forgive the sins of our forefathers at the table. But God, we ask you right now, give us the unfinished business. Give us the redemptive purpose and true meaning for why you birthed us into the families that we're born into. God, we ask you that today, 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 a new storyline, a new thread could be released. 
so that generations even yet to be created can praise you. In Jesus' name. Just open your hands to receive right now. Lord, we pray that you would bring us into your unfinished business. Things that, even for those, God, that they have no idea what's happened in the past. God, we know that you've already started something. The God of history, you've started something, God. We ask for that exponential release in this generation. And we say yes to you today, God. We say yes to you and your ways, your plans for our lives, God. We ask that you would download the unfinished business today. Download it corporately in this congregation. Download it individually on us as we say yes to you. And we ask for that exponential release that you would fulfill all the promises. Listen, God, fulfill all the promises that you've made. Leave nothing undone, God. We ask you to fill all the promises in Jesus' name. Jesus' name. We'll talk about this more tonight. Listen. You know, the other interesting thing about that Lockett Farmhouse and Matt's family, that house, it said that the one army was in the front, that one army was about the north and the south fighting against each other. That house was between both armies. There has to be a house, church, that stands in the gap between the brothers who are trying to tear each other apart. What if it's a rise, church, in this region? just like that old house you're going to take some shots but listen it's worth it to stand in the gap with jesus it's so worth it we've taken our shots but listen i'd rather stand in the gap with this man in jesus than anything and anybody else because listen you know the other thing about the house the next day after the war was over the house got turned into a hospital for both sides yeah and ex-slaves worked with white nurses to heal the wounds of the brothers that have been fighting against each other. That's the house that we want to be a part. God, we say, we say from Arise Church, Arise Church! Take your place in the gap! Take your place in the mission of the vision! Heal the breach! Be repairers of the breach! I hope you enjoyed this conversation today, and I especially hope it added value to you. If you enjoyed it, would you do me a favor and give us a five-star rating on your podcast provider? It really helps to get the word out. And of course, if you share this content with your friends, that would be great too. And until next time, I hope you continue creating a better future. I look forward to being with you again soon.